All right. Well, let's open our Bibles up to Romans 16. I'm excited about this. We are finishing our first book tonight. You know, it's taken us around 19 weeks to do it, you know. But it's been great, you know. I, I hope it's been as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. Every time I've got to teach through Romans, it always rekindles my understanding, you know. And I've heard, uh, I've had many, many pastor friends, and, and a lot of them who... I guess do the uh, topical thing more than they would an exegetical. You know, always, always say, and I'm going to show you tonight, we're going to see a reason why most people don't do exegetical text teaching. Because um, it can be a little challenging. We're going to see that with a lot of the names that I've got to use tonight. Uh, it's not bad in the New Testament. Try teaching through the book of Leviticus. Uh, oh, yeah. It's fun. It, it will test your vocabulary real quick. Uh, but I always think, you know, they're, they're missing out so much because every time I've, I've read through this, the insight that God rekindles and, and gives me new insight and then gives me insight even through other people who are listening and who are set there. So a lot of the feedback that I've gotten, I've been so blessed by. And uh, once again, I hope that you guys have uh, been too. I'm really excited about getting into, Ro into Hebrews. But just to set this last chapter up, Paul has taken us you know, for 15 chapters, he's laid out perfectly what the gospel is. He's talking to people that he'd never even met, but he desperately wants to. But these are people with a great, great reputation. These are people who are strong in the Lord. These are people who are strong in the word. And their life shows it. And this is really, if you want to see what it is, you know, because we talk a lot here lately about community, you know, living in community and those type of things and doing all those things. You're going to see it in this chapter. What perfect timing. I couldn't time this stuff better. I couldn't, you couldn't time this stuff like. Because this is where we're at, even as a congregation here at Mark. This is where we're at. You know, we're trying to encourage people to be in together, you know, fellowship, be at one another's. These guys didn't have those type of classes. I want you to understand that. These are guys that just got it. This was a healthy, healthy church that didn't even have Paul there. And there's reason for that, but you're going to see why here in just a little bit. Because a lot of things that we're trying to promote, you're going to see in this chapter. And it's really interesting because so often we don't, you know, so many churches don't get it. But you go back to the early church, there it is, you know. And that's why it's so beautiful. Let's just dive into it because we are going to finish up tonight. Romans 16. I'm going to cover verse 1 and 2 first. Here we go. I commend unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sinchia. Centuria, sorry, that you receive her in the Lord as become a saints, that you assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a secure of many, and of myself also. Paul starts off this last chapter by commending this one lady, which I think is very interesting. Ladies, take note of that. The first person he commends is Phoebe. Paul understood the value of women in a church. He understood it. And more specifically, women who served in the church. If you're taking notes tonight, you know, or even if you're listening by radio, make mention, make, make note of the, how many times he mentions the term servant here and the accolades that he pays to the people as we're going to go look at these. This is interesting because keep it in mind, Paul doesn't throw this stuff out lightly. Paul's speaking by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is a true statement. This is stuff that is true. He's not just paying compliments, you understand. 
So he says, you know, he, he tells Phoebe, I commend this woman unto you. She was a servant of the church. Phoebe was on her way to Rome and probably most likely was the one who carried this letter to them. And so Paul entrusted her with this precious letter that we have of the Romans. He gave it to a woman and she carried it to that church. That to me, that alone is, is very powerful. So thus Paul sends this recommendation in advance of this particular sister uh, in Christ so that the, the church at, at Rome would not only receive her, you know, and, and, and welcome her in as one of their own, but that they would support her during her stay there and that they would help her with whatever she was doing. These type of recommendations were extremely important and are still important today. They're very important because there was a great need for this kind of assistance and still today in the body of Christ for the proclamation or the, you know, of the gospel. It's great need for that. But the recommendation was necessary because there was also, as it is today, many deceivers, many people who would prey upon the generosity of the church and would go and present themselves as being something and looking for handouts and those type of things as though they were doing work for the Lord when in really they were, they were not. So it was important that Paul sent this recommendation uh, commending Phoebe. He calls her a servant. I love this word here. Phoebe was a servant of the church, and I want you to get this. She wasn't just at the church at Sechariah, which is where she was from. She was a, church, she was a servant in the church. Now, it's also interesting to, to make mention of the fact that in the Greek, this word is deacon, is what it is. So Phoebe was a deaconess, is what she was. But she wasn't just a deaconess within her home church, you understand. Phoebe was a deaconess in the church at large. And it's important that we understand that when God has placed us in the body, he has set some in the church, we're told in Ephesians, evangelists, you know, or apostles, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. He's not talking about just in that particular congregation there at Ephesus. When God speaks of the church, he speaks of us as, as a collective, but a collective of individuals. We are the church then we happen to, this congregation, we happen to congregate here at this particular place. But we are the church. And so I've always said, I had a, used to have people would ask me, how do you pick deacons and elders? Now, I'd like to say I came up with this one, but I didn't. I learned it from my pastor, Chuck Smith. But here's what Chuck taught us when I was a young pastor. He said, it's the easiest thing in the world to pick deacons and elders. Deacons deke and elders eld. All you got to do is watch. What does deacon mean? Most of the time it's translated what? Servant. Now it is interesting to note that when it's translated servant, it's always referring to women. When it refers to men in the New Testament, it always is translated deacon. Now that's a translational problem because in the Greek it's the same word. What's that tell me? It's an unfortunate translation. I don't care what Bible you're using, okay? It's unfortunate. Because they need that recognition. This is, one of the, this is one of those little things that's led to women being subjugated, okay, sometimes to a lower echelon thing, when, when in reality, Paul never did such a thing. Now, there are certain things. When we get to Timothy, you're going to find that there are certain positions that, for God's reasons, he has not permitted. But this is not one of them. And so Paul calls her a deacon, but she was a deacon at large. So once again, if you're in a position, if you're an elder, I like the fact that Peter called himself. He said, I also am an elder. And so he was an elder no matter where he was at. You know, 
I myself have been an elder in the body of Christ for a long, long time, for many, many years. I operated within the office of a pastor, but being a pastor, you have to be an elder to be a pastor, but you don't have to be a pastor to be an elder, okay? A pastor is an office. If any man desires the office of a bishop, office is an office. So we can pick those guys, you know. But, and God picks them, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's, it's an office. It's not the same as being called as far as an elder goes. And what's an elder mean? It means we've been doing it a little bit longer than some other people. And I've got elders in here that have been doing it a little longer than I have. You know? So we all have those. But, but you're, you're that no matter where. It's like being a teacher. You know, and I've been to other fellowships. You know, once I retired, our desire was to help no matter where we were at. Now, some churches, you know, a couple churches, I only went to a couple, and, and one was very receptive to that, one not so much, you know, because they were leery. I understand people being stand up. You, you want to be careful. Paul's going to tell us here in a little bit. You want to be careful, you know, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker of other men's sins. The Bible's very clear on that. But once you have brethren, once you've been around them and you understand, you should see that deaconess, you should see the deacon, or you should see the elder in them. You know, so often people look for those titles. It's not really a title, it's a placement. He has placed some in the church, the Bible tells us in Ephesians. So it's a placement in the body of Christ. Well, who does that? Well, God does that. You know, I mean, I used to tell guys, I used to have people, you know, over 17 years I pastored at Calvary Chapel, and I, I pastored another church before this, so collectively, you know, for space of 30 years I pastored. I couldn't tell you how many times I actually had people who would come to me seeking a title. You know, they would seek a title. They wanted to be a deacon, or they wanted to be an elder. And, you know, I, I, here's what I used to tell them. I said, look, I can lay hands on you and call you anything. I can lay hands on you and call you an elder. I don't make you one. God makes you that. And all we can do at best is lay hands on you and agree with God that this is what you are. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we see it in you. You know, and I used to tell those guys, you know what? Go do what it is that God's called you to do. See, let the people see it. They'll recognize it. If that's what you truly are gifted at, if this is what you are, they'll get, and then as a fellowship, as a congregation, we'll recognize that. That's just the way it should be done. But Phoebe, obviously, was a deaconess, but she was a deaconess in the entire body of Christ. And, and, and Paul sends this great recommendation uh, beforehand. She had been a helper of many people. And he says, of myself also. Phoebe receives one of the greatest compliments that anyone can get because of her practical service. I like that about this woman. She just was a practical helper. You know, she was, you know, I'm not, not to bring up my, my wife, and I'm not trying to pump her up, but that's what the type of woman my wife is. You know, Lisa's one of those type of people, and even when I was pastoring, she was one of my administrators, and, and she was just, I mean, I didn't have to ask anything to be done. It just got done. I'd show up at board meetings, and there would be papers laid out everywhere, and everything would be in order, because I'm very disorganized. I, I just go, let's do it. You know, I was like that in business. You know, that's why I never gave out much business advice, Ned, to most people. I didn't do it because I knew that I was there only by the grace of God. I knew it because I, I, I was never a micromanager. People would come to me going, hey, I want to do this. I go, ah, make it so. <laughs> you know, I figured if it was God, it would work. If it wasn't, it wouldn't. You know, so I was never like that, you know. But 
Some people are gifted in that. My wife's one of them, you know. They just do. Practical doing, you know. It's, just, it's one of those things. It's just it's absolutely essential. And Paul gives her this accolade because of it. And I think it's also interesting that Phoebe, you know, her name is a feminine form of a title that was given to the pagan god Apollo. Yeah. I, and I always say that because I, it means the bright one. But I also think it's interesting that the early Christians who were Roman, okay, who had these pagan names, never felt the necessity to change them. They didn't come to Christ going, oh, wait, wait a minute, my, I, my mom named me after, you know, and so they ran down and decided to change it. No, they didn't do that, you know, which I always think is interesting because when you look at Islam, everybody who goes into that cult, what's the first thing they do? They change their name. They want to change their name, you know. God isn't calling you to change your name. The Lord says, come as you are. Come as you are. I've told you the story about Harold who took over pastoring for me. You know, had hair all the way down his back, five earrings on his side and four on the other, and one of the coolest beards that I wished I had, you know. He just, he just, he just was cool. But he loved God. He still does. But he, he was just cool. He, he was my drummer in Shadow Circle also. Nice guy, loved the Lord, loved people, you know. But I'll never forget, you know, when he felt the calling, and I, and I confirmed the calling upon his life, which was true. You know, you could see it. One day I'm sitting up there, and, and, and just for the sake of repeating it, just to give you an illustration, I'm sitting up there, it was early, uh, I always got there first, and I was up there tuning my guitar in the sanctuary. I look up, and I see somebody coming down the back stairs, and, and I'm going, who's that guy? You know, because you, you never know, people, strange people walk in at weird hours, and I look up, and the closer he got, I was going, oh, my lands. Here was Harold. Here he had cut all of his hair off. His beard was all trimmed up real neat. Earrings were out. He's wearing a regular. And I went, what? What did you do? And he goes, what do, you, what do you mean? I said, what did you do? Why did you do that? Why, why would you do that? And he says, well, you know. And I said, well, you think you look more pastoral? I said, brother, that's what these people love about you. You're you. They like the fact that you're you. They liked your dumb-looking long hair. I can't do it, you know, but they liked it. Why would you do You know, and, and he, and I said, but you know what? If God called you to do it, if, he, if, the, if you can honestly say the Lord told you to do it, then hey, with my blessing. But be yourself, man. You know, these people didn't feel a need to change their name. That was my only point. Look at verse 3. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ, who for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Priscilla and Aquila. I love this couple, man. These people are just amazing. They're just amazing, you know? This loving couple who were very strong in the Lord and were not only just servants as far as being helpers, which Paul says, but their service to the body of Christ extended even to the realm of teaching. And so I want to jump over to you. I want you to go with me to the book of Acts. And I want to read something with you in the book of Acts, chapter 18. And I'm going to start reading in verse 24. Just so you can kind of get a glimpse of, of, of this couple, this married couple. Verse 24, 
Acts chapter 18. And a certain man, or a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria, if you don't know this, I'm just going to throw this in for free. Alexandria was the hub of intellectualism. And at this particular time, it had one of the largest libraries that were known in the, in the known world. Huge, huge library. It got burnt down later on, which was, a, which was a shame because we lost a lot of ancient manuscripts. But it was an enormous place of learning. So here's a policy. I just want to throw that in because this guy was a very smart man. So he was born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. If you're taking note, make note of that. He was mighty in the scriptures and he came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Now keep that in mind. Being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. What's that mean? Well, I knew the baptism of John. All of this guy was preaching was repentance. You know, turn or burn. You know, it's all he knew. And then this couple heard him preach. Why? Because he was probably made, they probably said, man, you got to go hear this guy. This is Apollos, man. This dude can preach, man. This dude is a preacher. And here this couple, just, you know, tent makers, you know, by trade. We're going to find it out later. You know, they go, let's go listen to the guy. So they go listen to him. So, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took unto them, took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass to Acacia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Aquila and Priscilla were so strong in the word, man. These guys were so grounded in it. They were able to teach, not only to teach really, but to correct doctrinally such a man as Apollos, who was already an eloquent man, who was already learned man, who was already mighty in the scriptures. Here this couple took and expounded to him the way of God more perfectly. They were able to correct his doctrine because all he knew was the baptism of John. Even though he preached it with might, he preached it with eloquence, and he was attracting a large group, he still didn't have the whole truth. And yet here's this great couple of God who hears this, and they began to take him and say, hey, look, because it says something not just about them. This says something about Apollos, and I want to point this out. Think about this. Here's this guy who's already attracting enormous crowds. Very eloquent man. And here comes this couple who he has no idea who they are. He don't know who these people are. They're tent makers. Tent makers. Not a real prestigious job, you know. Certainly weren't doctors, <laughs> you know. Wasn't like they demanded or, or commanded any type of attention. And yet they go, they listen to him, and they go to this guy and they say, Hey, we want to talk to you because I like what you're saying, but you're missing something. And let me show you from the scriptures. And they take unto him and they expound to him a way of God more perfectly. And then Apollos receives it. 
Because why? Well, the scriptures just told us. Then the brethren went and said, receive this man. Listen to this guy. Because now he's preaching the grace of Jesus Christ, and he needs to be listened to. Now his arsenal of scripture knowledge was, was full. Now he had the ability to expound everything that Jesus Christ had done, not just to the baptism of John, but to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would be poured out upon all people at the day of Pentecost, and that applies to anybody who believes. He was able to do that. What's that tell me about him? He was humble. He was eloquent. He was powerful. He was mighty in the scriptures, but he was humble. He could hear the voice of somebody else. Once again, going back to my original point, talking about Phoebe, about being a deaconess within the church at large. You know, we need to be open. When somebody comes in, we need, do we need to test people? Absolutely. We need to be, you know, test the spirits, whether they be of Christ, you know. But once they've been proven, you know, we need to at least be walking in the spirit and have the, the, the ability to realize when somebody is truly coming to us in the love of Jesus Christ, trying to help our understanding or maybe do better than what we could do. So often, I mean, I, one of, the, of my same denomination at the time, you know, after my retirement, I was, I was involved with them. I was driving an hour and a half, right, to church every Sunday and would have went many times a week because I wanted to see him do well. This is a man who had been uh, behind the pulpit for a fairly reasonable number of years, but still fairly young guy, you know, uh, 10 or 15 years behind a pulpit. I know that sounds like a long time but not when it's only a handful of people. So there was a lot of things that he was short in, especially when it came to teaching. You know, I heard a little bit of grace. They talked about it. They talked about it. But it's another thing to show it. You know, so we wanted to help. And so often that people are just not open to that. You know, why? Because, you know, this is my place. Well, I know, brother. I remember telling the guy to his face, I said, bro, I'm on your side. I'm the biggest advocate that probably ever walked in this door. I don't want your job. I've had it. And I had it in a big way. I don't want it. But I want to see you do well. I want to see this place packed for your sake so that you can send them out to win more people for Christ. That's my sole thing. And, you know, but it was hard to, to get him to see that. Why? Because he looked at where I had been. This is a guy who had said, matter of fact, one of the letters of recommendation that I got when I came here was from him. How much he loves sitting in my seminars and sitting in my teaching. What a great pastor I was and what a great... And yet that was, what, that was the reception that I got when I tried to help him. I'm not picking on him. I've said this stuff to his face, which is probably why he doesn't talk to me anymore. Um, and that's fine. Listen, I'm still his friend. If I'm your friend, I'm always your friend. You might get mad at me, but you can't stop me from loving you. I just want to help you. you know? I want to see you do well. You know, and so they were open. This is what I'm trying to tell you about Apollos. He was open. He was humble. He was a mighty man of God. He already could teach. You understand? He already could teach. Aquila and Priscilla wasn't teaching. Well, let me tell you how to teach this. And that's not what they were doing. They were saying, you're a great teacher, but you're not teaching the full truth. And that happens so often, even today. You know, we're getting a partial bit of it, but we need to expound all of it to people. So when you're sharing, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're teaching, I had somebody ask me the other day, they were over at our house, how's the Bible study going? I said, the Bible study's going great. I'm excited, man. I said, you know what? I said, you know, you give me, <laughs> the old, what's the old adage? Give me 10 men who are stout-hearted men who know what the life, who, let me see if I get it right. Give me 10 men who are stout-hearted men 
who will die for the life they adore. Give me 10 men who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. You give me a handful of people that have a love for the word of God and just to assimilate it and then to facilitate it. And that's exactly what will happen. But that takes time. And so I told him, I said, oh, man. I said, you know, not only are we getting, you know, people who have come for 19, like 20 weeks in a row. I know that doesn't sound like much, but, you know, that's a, that's a heck of a commitment. Just for somebody just to come and listen to the word of God being taught. But it's also being taught on radio. And I said, so we, you know, it's going to be at least a year and a half before we see what kind of impact that just teaching the Word of God will have. And I tell you, it will. It always does, you know. So they weren't trying to fix this guy except in a doctrinal way because they wanted to see him do well. They knew that he would because he knew Christ, but he only knew the baptism of John. So Aquila and Priscilla was just a great couple, man. They just wanted to help. And Paul says, the church that is in their house, you know, there in our text. Paul phrasing here gives us a clue as to the organization of the early church. In any particular city with a Christian community of any size, there were these house churches, okay? Why? Because there was no church building. Uh, for several reasons. One, Christianity was persecuted. All it was was a target. It's like, well, they're all in one place. Just let's wait till they're there. We'll go get them. They knew that. They weren't stupid. It's like that in China. You know, it's like that in China even to this day. The, the house church is the one that's really the organized church, which you see the government condone is just, it's not, it's not a church. It's the house churches that are really doing it. And they do it in secret because they can get drug out at any time. And it's legal over there to execute a Christian. You never hear them griping. You never hear our government talk about that. You know, you don't even hardly hear them talk about the beheadings or anything that goes on and the persecution that's happening. But it's been happening in China a lot longer. So this church was in their house. And so it's interesting that within any given town at that time, there would be several of these home churches. And each one of those home churches actually wound up having its own pastor. So it was very... Once in a while, they would get together as a whole. Uh, but it's just a very interesting thing as far as the organizing of the church. Then Let's go back and look at verse 5, where I left off. Now, I told you when I started this that you're going to see the reason why a lot of people don't like to do expository teaching. Because sometimes you get to these chapters where there's lots of names. Okay, I'm going to do the best I can because these names are transliterated. Okay, Which means if I was to give you the Greek name, it might not sound... Exactly, because when you transliterate something, they're just taking one letter from the Greek and they translate it into another letter of English. And whatever you get in front of you, I can give you two prime examples is Leviathan and Behemoth. That's why everybody goes, what kind of animal are those? Uh, well, the Bible's pretty descriptive of it. I, I, we haven't got there yet. I believe there were dinosaurs and I can give you proof for it. Whole other story. But the, but the word Leviathan, uh, Behemoth, those are transliterations from the Hebrew. The word baptism is not an English word. It is now, but it's actually a transliteration from the Greek. Uh, so there's all kinds of them in there. So having said that, here we go. He says, salute my well-beloved Epinasius, I think, who is the first fruits of Acacia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. If you're taking notes, you need to make that much labor. Just look at that. Salute Androconis and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilius, 
my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urban, our helper in Christ in Stockings, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of, the, of uh, Aristopolis' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which, is, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his, and his other, or his mother, it says mother, right? My print says other for some reason. Well, it's not your fault, it's this is in the text. So, and his mother and mine. Salute and Edicretus, Philagan, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philogus and Julia, Nurses, and his sister, and Olympus, or Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you, and thank God that's over. <laughs> like I said, it only gets worse when you get to Leviticus. Okay? You get the Amakites and the termites and everything else. Epipeta, I can't even pronounce this guy's name. Whatever it is. This brother is of note because apparently, apparently, he was among the first converts of, converts of Acacia. And so, uh, and Acacia, of course, is that region where the church of Corinth was located, and, and it's actually where Paul wrote this letter from, okay? So it, it's apparent that this brother was very dear to Paul because in referring to him, he uses the term beloved, a word that Paul did not use lightly. Paul calls him beloved. And Draconis and Juna, he mentions, they are apparently a Jewish couple. Uh, Paul called them my kinsmen, that's how we know that, who had been imprisoned with him. So these are fellow prisoners with him. And they had been imprisoned for the sake of, of the gospel. They were well regarded amongst the apostles, he says. And just as a side note, and I'll throw this one in, it says that they were noted among the apostles. Some Bible teachers have speculated that if there were other apostles, not of the twelve, but other apostles, that it's possible that maybe this couple were also considered apostles. I don't personally agree with that uh, because the apostleship is something... Yeah, you start getting, because this is really, this, this scripture, this is the only one that they use for that, and it's really weak. And really, all, what he's saying is that these, this couple was kind of like Aquila and Priscilla, in that the apostles took note of them. You know, I think that's really all the scripture is saying. But they were a great couple in the Lord. And, and Pius, there's a tomb uh, that dates to the early 2nd century in, a catac in the catacombs of Rome. Uh, where the name of Applius uh, is, is been inscribed. And a lot of people believe that it's talking about, it's the, maybe the tomb of this very same guy uh, here found in 16.8, Romans. So he says, the house of Aristopolis. Once again, some have speculated that Paul only mentions those of the house of Aristopolis. I do think it's interesting that Charles Spurgeon spoke of this guy in one of his sermons. And he said, oh, Aristopolis, where are you? You know, because Spurgeon also believed that he wasn't 
referring to Aristopolis as a Christian, but only to those who were in his household. And it's interesting, and of course, Spurgeon in one of his sermons talked about the fact that you have a lot of Christians sometimes who are living in the household of unbelievers. And it happens, you know, it happens. Paul, the whole seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, you know, you could go back and look at that chapter, uh, talking about marriage and, and why it shouldn't be unevenly yoked. But sometimes people get saved. Uh, they were both heathens, and one becomes a Christian. And it's no guarantee that the other will become a Christian. As Paul tells us in that chapter, eventually we'll get to it. You know, but the fact is, is that you can wind up in those situations. So uh, people have, have speculated that maybe this is the case with uh, Aristopolis. So Spurgeon very well may be right on that. He says, Rufus, this may be the same man mentioned as the son of Simon, the Cyrenium in Mark 15, 21. Uh, it's possible that, that is the same guy, but you got to keep it in mind that Rufus was a very, very common name at that time. So was he? I don't know. But he does say chosen in the Lord. When using this particular term to describe Rufus, Paul leaves us with the idea that Rufus had some eminence among the Christians in Rome. Because it's not really referring to his election in Christ, uh, but more his calling within the church, you know. And so I think it's very, it's, it's notable that we, that we take a look at that. And then he talks about Nerus. There's a story uh, that's told that from nine, uh, in 95 AD that there was this couple uh, who were Christians, and the husband had been uh, put to death, and his wife had been banished. But their master servant of their household, because they were a wealthy couple, their master servant was a man by the name of Nerus. And many people believe that it was this same guy. And, and those who have told that story believe that Neris was the one who eventually took the gospel to that couple. They got saved. And, of course, unfortunately, uh, the husband became a martyr uh, for Jesus Christ. Um, but it was Neris that took the gospel to him. Then Paul makes this statement. Salute one another with a holy kiss. Now, some people have, have, have read this, and uh, we crack jokes about it, and they laugh, you know, and it's kind of funny. But even to this day, okay, in Europe and over in the Middle East, it's a common practice. Uh, later on in the church, uh, there was uh, the, um, um, uh, the pastor whose name was Clement, part of the early church. Y you really saw it starting to get out of hand. Uh, it started to be abused, uh, especially when you got, the farther the church got away from the Middle East and started to become assimilated, you know, into other parts of the world, they read this passage, and a lot of times they didn't, having not been part of the culture, they began to do some pretty weird stuff. Uh, I know one, oh yeah, I know one church right now, not too far from us, okay, in, in another town that I used to pastor in, where the men, because it was a, uh, uh, um, not Amish, but Mennonite, it was Mennonite church, where they actually kissed on the mound, and I'm talking to guys. And I said, you know, I gotta be honest with you, my manliness would come out real quick if a guy tried to kiss me. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Uh, nah, you know, Dougie, don't play that game. You know what I mean? Uh, give me a handshake, give me a hug, three pats on the back and step back. You know what I mean? You've, you, now you're getting in my space, okay? And uh, I'm lovey, I don't mind hugging, and, I, and it's, I'm good with that, but you know, there's a rule on it. So once it got farther away, and uh, so Clement, the old pastor who's actually one of the early church fathers, he wrote about it. 
and said that this practice had become to the point where it was evil spoken of, even in the church, because it was looking, starting to look kind of unseemly. But to them, it was a normal thing. Paul said, you know, greet the brethren with a holy kiss. Jesus even talked about it, if you remember right, when the Pharisee, he rebuked the Pharisee for not giving him a kiss when he came in. But what they did was they would kiss each other on the cheek, and they do that even to this day. Uh, one of the reasons why I hate going to Europe. No, it's just, it's just weird, you know? You, have you guys, anybody been to Europe? Other than, well, you've been to Europe, haven't you? Yeah. Did you experience that? Oh, you didn't? You weren't in social gatherings then, because that's all we did. And, of course, I went over to do a wedding, and everybody wants to kiss you over there, and they want to just you know, put their cheek on you. It's, 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 my wife is okay. Just me and her. I don't want nobody. You know. And I try to avoid it. You know, you shake hands with me, you're kind of going, you know. And, and, and they just, like, want to pull you in, you know. You're going, oh, I was uncomfortable with that. No, no, sir. No. Dougie, Dougie didn't like it. Yeah, it's, uh, so anyway, he says, salute him with a holy kiss. Nowadays, we're going to call it a handshake, a slight hug, three pats, quit, okay? That's all you got to do. And you don't even have to do the hug, you know? Hug is okay, though. So he, talk, <laughs> he mentions the whole issue of women in the church, which I think is very cool. Notice the women who are mentioned in this chapter. This is very, very significant. Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, Tryphenia, Tryphosa, the mother of Rufus and Julia. These women are said to have worked for the Lord. This is what Paul said about them. They worked for the Lord. I want you to also notice that Tryphena and Tryphosa labored in the Lord, is what Paul said. They labored in the Lord. But others, like Persis, labored much for the Lord. Now, Paul makes these distinctions. What does this teach us? There are distinctions and degrees of honor among believers within the body of Christ. There are graduated by scale, if you will, okay, on the order of service. Paul makes, that's why he lays it out the way he does. Now, it's always an honor to labor for Christ. It always is. It's always an honor to labor for Christ. But it's a greater honor still to labor much. To labor much. So if there be any within the Christian church desiring place, position, honor, or respect, the way to achieve it is this. Labor and labor much for the Lord. Because others will see it. It'll be the other Pauls, the other... Uh, types of apostle type people, the elders, who will see that and make note of it, you know? One of the things I was blessed enormously with when I got to pastor was <coughs> Calvary Chapel was the amount of servants that we had, people who were just genuinely, just love the Lord, you know? And I'm not saying that, that people who don't necessarily label don't love the Lord. Don't misunderstand me on this. But because these were really in-depth studying people. And one thing I've heard over, I had a guy sitting in my house last night who had been at the church where I used to pastor. And he said, you know, he goes, I, he said, I never could believe, I, I couldn't grasp how much Bible these people knew. He said, I just couldn't get used to it, you know. Because he said, no matter who I talked with, 
He said the first thing you knew they were going to do was probably be quoting you a scripture, and then they wanted to pray for you. <laughs> if that's a criticism, that's great, you know. What a criticism to have. They would you know, want to talk to you about the word of God, then, hey, can I pray for you? <laughs> you know, but they're not going to wait. You know, they're going to pray for you right now. Why? Because that's, there's no better time than the, than the present, you know. But Paul mentions this, you know, and it should be our desire for our fellowship to be the same way, you know. We just want to see people be grounded in the word, man, their self, become self-feeders. Because look at what Paul everything that we've read so far, and we're going to finish up here in just a little bit. Paul has, look at the accolades that he said, these are people he didn't know. He's going on reputation. He's going on the word of so many others. Now, some of them, like Phoebe, he knew. But a lot of them he didn't know, you know? And the women he mentions here, I think it's just absolutely astonishing that these, and keep it in mind, they weren't on the payroll gang. They weren't on the payroll. I remember talking to uh, uh, one of our pastors, and they were asking me some stuff about my experience in pastoring which I'm not sure is a good thing. It was like asking me about business. I did it because God put me at it. You know? and, and they said, well, what was your budget? Because we had our own radio station, which is still there, uh, WTLL, 98.9 The Vine. And then we had you know, our own restaurant. We had you know, a big outreach. You know? He said, well, what was, your, what was your budget? I said, I, we didn't have one. He said, what? Well, we, didn't, we didn't have one. You never had a budget? No. Yeah. No, never did. What did you do at your meetings? I said, I looked at a P&L statement. What else do you do? What's a P&L? Profit and loss. Here's what we spent. Here's what we took in. As long as what we spent was less than what we took in, we were doing great. We were doing great. Everything was paid. You know? Well, how many people are on your payroll? <laughs> well, that's, that, that, maybe that's why everything was paid, because we didn't have a payroll. <laughs> what? You didn't have a payroll? What about you? I didn't take it. I didn't take it. Could I have? Yes. Is it right? Yes. I didn't personally need it. God had blessed me in an enormous way. You know, I'm not comparing myself to the front runner of the GOP, but I do think it's interesting that this, the man that they have right now, who's a billionaire, said, I don't want paid. I don't want it if he wins. Of course, it's probably a big if, but I'm just saying. I think that says something about somebody. You know, if you don't need it, you know, but is it right that the church do it? Absolutely. A workman's worthy of his hire. There's nothing wrong with that. But asking me about Calvary Chapel and how we did it, you know, it's totally out of the norm, man. It's just totally out of the norm. But so was my business. Every, I just always just kind of went with the Lord on that stuff. You know, God always provided. I never had to do a fundraiser. As crazy as that sounds, we built a radio station. I had 14 months to get that thing on the air. And we walked in one day, and somebody wanted to put one of those thermometers up. <laughs> one of those thermometers up, you know. And we laugh at them, because I always thought they were funny. <laughs> they, they put the, the, you know, this is how much money we needed. I remember the guy calling me on the phone when he told me we got our license. I had forgot all about it, that we even applied. It was five years of getting that license. And the guy calls me, he goes, I just want to be the first to congratulate you. And I said, who is this? And he told me his name. He goes, you know, he's with the FCC. Oh. He says, well, you got your license. And I said, oh. Oh, forgot all about that. Dude, wow. That, oh, that means we got oh, to build a radio station. He goes, well, yeah, if you want to keep the license, you do. Uh, is there a time limit on that? 
He goes, yeah, you got 14 months to get it on the air. Or it goes dark. You don't, you lose the license. Oh, okay. So <laughs> next board meeting, I said, hey, uh, told the church that. And as a matter of fact, that, that Sunday, I said, hey, we got our license. Woohoo! Everybody was like, yeah, praise the Lord. I said, now we got to pay for it. <laughs> now we got to build it, you know? And everybody, yeah, it's subdued real quick after that. It was like, cheering went to like, ooh, you know? It was like the pastor that walked in one morning. And he says, I got great news. We got the money to do the expansion completely paid for. And the church went crazy. Yeah, praise God. The bad news is the money's still in your pocket. <laughs> and that changes, that changes everything. But here's my philosophy. Here was my philosophy. And I'm not saying everybody, this is just the way the Lord dealt with me. I thought, you know what? If God really gave us the radio station, he knows we need the money, right? We put such limits on God. Doesn't God know? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he, wouldn't he, if he was going to guide, would he not also provide? Do I have to whip the sheep to, to you know, to take them and to get the change out of them? No, I, I don't think so. So when they came and said, hey, we can put up with that, I said, you ain't putting up no thermometer. What I did allow them finally to do, because they kept insisting, I think they drew this like picture of a tower, and they did put a monthly thing on it that showed how long we had to have it before it was on the air, before we lost it. But it, was, it wasn't to raise money. Not once. I never, I, I never did that. And I'm not saying hallelujah to me. I'm just saying it's just the way the Lord led me. We never did that kind of stuff. But God always provided. And I still, to this day, if, if, if anybody asked me, well, where did the money come from? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you because not only did we have to put the radio station up, we had to put a whole new roof on a building. And, of course, you guys, you've been here, those of you who have been here a long time, I'm sure you know what the cost of putting a new roof on a building this size is. Well, we had to put that on on a building that was built in the 30s, which by the time we got done doing it, the cost of just the roof was over $80,000. And then we had to put a tower on top of it, which that was a, a whole other thing because I had to go to the city and convince them this was, we got time, let me just tell this one. This is, this is God. This is so funny. We went to the city to, to tell them, down, we were downtown. We were going to put a 160-foot tower on top of a building that was three and a half stories high. 160 foot time. Think about that. That's, that's up there. Okay? They weren't buying it. I watched, we're sitting there with my assistant pastor, and I'm sitting there at a board meeting, you know, the, the, the zoning commission, and everybody that went up that wanted to do something got shot down. Everybody. Every person went up, we just want to put a sign. No. Boom. No. Boom. It was like these 12 little old men, okay? And one of them was like 120. I, the guy had to be 120 years old. He was the noisiest and most. No. Everybody, and I looked at Bill, I went, it ain't God, brother. <laughs> Once again, if positive confession was right, nothing would have ever happened in my life because I was, I, was, I was totally convinced that we were going to get shot down. They had asked for us to have a photographer come in. And they took pictures of our building and then superimposed a tower on top of it to give the board a, some of a picture of what it would, how much it was going to mess up their skyline, as though Zanesville has one. And, but but that, was their, that was their reasoning, right? So here I am with this, and I have to admit, even when I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> they're, they're not going to. There's no way, you know. So here come our turn. We was last. We went up there, and I passed out the pictures. I had to have 12, and they're sitting there, and the guy's going, and one of them started laughing. He went, 
you really, you want us to let you put this tower on top of the, which they could, they, our building could be seen from, from where we were at. They just opened the blinds. And he's picturing this 160-foot tower. And here's what I said. I said, well, if it makes you feel any better, don't think of it as a tower. He goes, what do you mean? I said, think of it as a steeple. That's what I said. Because I figured they were going to shoot it down anyway, so I might as well make a joke out of it, you know. And he went, huh. They turned around, and within 10 seconds, he went, okay. It was God. It was God, because I was convinced they weren't going to. So we went up there, and of course, they, they put the, but my only point is, how did we pay? I have no idea. To this day. Uh, I remember those guys calling me, and they're going, well, we need a tower. You go, well, towers cost money. <laughs> The cable costs money. The antenna costs money. And I've, I've, I've called this, the, all these radio. I'm going, how much is this going to cost? And the guy's going, well, you know, for a station that size, if you do it modestly. And I'm going, oh, it's going to be modest. You know, but, you know, we want to do it right. He's like, oh, well, you know, it's not that, you know, 150, 120, maybe 150,000. I'm going, yeah, I'll just write you a check for that, you know. No. But, but it got built. And, and it got built on time and actually under time. So... God does that stuff, man. You know, we just, the reason we don't see it much is, is because we put limits on him. We think that the money has to flow through people. And it does, you know. Uh, but, you know, what did Jesus say? Give, and it shall be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. And I told you, the only piece we were lacking, and I've told you the story, was when uh, we had everything built. The roof was on, the tower was up, everything was ready to go. The only thing we didn't have was a transmitter. Or bored to run away. So you can't have it. You could have everything else, which we did, but we had no transmitter, which is how you get the sound out. Preparing for a Wednesday night study, I was sitting in my house and got a phone call from a close a southern friend of mine. And, and I, I think I've, I've told you the story. And he simply said, hey, you know, the Lord told me to call you. And it was just one of those things. And so what? God guides, God provides. Uh, he always has. He always will. So... But Paul gives these names, you know, he, he, he talks about the accolades of these people and, and all the things that God had used them to do and how they took care of the church. And my only point was, was that these people weren't doing it for love of money. They weren't. And neither should we. You know, if God pays you to do something, praise the Lord. But even if he doesn't pay you to do something, praise the Lord and do it anyway. You know, I remember Romaine, who was the assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa when Chuck was there. Romaine was a bit of a hard guy. He'd been a Marine Corps guy, and he only knew one way of doing it, and that was it. You know, that's why Chuck let him be <laughs> kind of like good cop, bad cop. Chuck was the guy who we could all love, and Romaine, you kind of just stayed out of his way because <laughs> he'd just tell you. But he was the trainer of deacons and elders. And Romaine would set you up. You know, if you were there for training, he would set you up. Like, he told the story. I wasn't there, and thank God. You know, he'd have been a hard guy uh, to, to uh, be discipled by. But he, you know, he took a piece of paper. And this is a huge sanctuary. I mean, at one time they had like 25,000 people going through there every week. So big church. And he threw a piece of paper just on the side, just off the side of the, because he knew the, the deacons in training were coming. And he just, and he sat down and he watched them come and he watched every one of them walk right by it. <laughs> and he went, you know, and of course, that's just the, oh my a big no-no with, with, with Romaine. And uh, he, he let him have it. He's going, you guys want to be deacons, and you, and you were every one of you. I saw two of you actually look down at it, and you walked right by it. You know, that's the type of thing. Deacons, deek, elders, eld. I'll tell you one story about Chuck, and then, I'll, then, I'll, then we'll finish up. 
Chuck Smith, this was, uh, of course, you know, he's home with the Lord now and, and greatly missed. And uh, it was raining. Uh, this is at Coast, just pouring down, a huge. And, and the church was huge. The parking lot was enormous. They had to have people out there all the time directing. One part of the parking lot was absolutely flooded. It was flooded. And you had all the deacons standing under the awning, okay, going, what are we going to do? You know, because they couldn't park cars, and they had thousands of cars they had to get. The place is flooded. It's literally the whole thing. They went and got Chuck, you need to get out here. We've got a problem. This is before church. Here it's pouring down rain. Chuck walks out. You got like 15, 20 deacons over here huddled underneath it. What are we going to do? <laughs> we better pray. Let's all pray about it. Which prayer is good? <laughs> Not saying anything. Chuck walked out and he went, oh. took his suit jacket off, said, Hold this, rolled his sleeves up, walked through the water, got out there where he saw where the, the, the drain was reached his arm, pulled his sleeve up, got down there and pulled a nasty diaper out of it. And of course the water he walked in, threw it in the trash, rolled his sleeve, didn't rebuke anybody because that's not Chuck. Took his coat, put it back on, went inside and top four services. That's an elder. It's an elder. That's what elders do, you know. Now, those guys I'm sure learned <laughs> a powerful example. Why? Because how do you lead? You lead by example, you know. So elders, L, deacons, deacons, it's not hard. All you got to do is watch. But these people here, man, they just got it. They love the Lord. Look at verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. And I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan's heel under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So he says to mark those that cause division. Paul mentions both those who would divide God's people by causing division and those who would deceive God's people by giving offenses teaching heresy, which are contrary to the doctrines of Christ. Once they are noted or marked, they are to be avoided, he says. Avoid them. So often these guys will come in and slip in, and they never come in announced. They don't come in. They come in, and they look really, they, you know, most of these guys are, I would say they have good intentions, but I don't believe they do. It happens, and it happens to many churches. It's happened so many times. Every time I hear of a church split, it's usually become some guy went rogue, some assistant pastor or worship leader, whatever. And it's always somebody who has some bright idea that they want to expound upon. And so instead of just saying, well, God's calling me to go do something else and go and doing it and seeing if the Lord will bless it, they want to walk out of a church with half a congregation, which is wrong. You know, it's just crazy. But it happens. Paul says, mark them which cause division and offenses and, and, and just avoid them. He says, I beseech you, brethren. Paul's tone in this suggest how important this particular aspect was to him. One old pastor said, mad dogs are shot, infectious diseases are quarantined, but evil teachers who would divide to their destruction and draw away the saints with teaching contrary to the, or teaching, with teachings that are contrary to the doctrine of Christ and his apostles are everywhere tolerated. And it's so true, you know. It's tolerated most of the time to the demise Big church in Zanesville. I knew the pastor, and I still know the pastor well. Uh, 
out of his own, he had his, <laughs> they started doing his Bikers for Christ Sundays. That I, I told you guys about this, I think. And next thing you know, <laughs> it only took two or three years. Now there's a biker church <laughs> made up of part of his church, <laughs> you know what I mean, which walked out. Why? Because they got divided, you know, and, and he, he allowed it to happen, and he didn't mark them, which were causing divisions. You got to watch that, you know. He said they deceived the hearts of the simple. This tells us dividers and deceivers don't affect everybody. They only affect the simple. What is he talking about? He's talking about immature Christians, people who are not in the Word. When you deal with people who don't know the Word of God, and you get somebody coming in with a strange doctrine, or maybe somebody that's been sitting there who comes up with a strange doctrine, it's easy to deceive those people. Why? Because they're not grounded in the Word. He said they serve their own bellies. So dividers and deceivers never want to appear to be selfish. They typically perceive themselves as being noble crusaders. I've seen this every time. I've had to deal with them. They always look at themselves as being, you know, they, they're going to set the church straight, you know. We're, we're going to fix the body of Christ because everybody else is screwed up, but we've got the secret key. Here's, a, here's an adage for you. Write this one down if you want to, or just get a copy of the recording so you never forget it. If it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't nothing new. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So if it's true, it's nothing new. If it's something new, it ain't true. That's just the way it is. And so often these guys come up with all these weird things and new ways of looking at stuff. And somebody read it in a book. Every guy I know that's off in La La Land right now, and I've got a real close guy. I love him to death. He used to be in ministry with me. Totally off in La La Land. Why? Because now he believes in, in, in uh, uh, universalism. Everybody's saved. Everybody's going, man. Everybody's going. And now the guy who wrote The Shack, he's on with that crew. You know, that book drove me up the wall anyway. I knew the guy was a knucklehead, you know. But now, now he's joined the crew of, 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 of evolutionists, or evolutionists, uh, universalists. So, you know, once again, even within the body of Christ at large, you've got to watch these guys, you know. Make note of it. Don't, he says avoid them. So, be wise, he said, to that which is good. This is the best defense against dividers and deceivers. You know, it's far more useful to know the good than it is to know the evil, to learn about the genuine rather than the counterfeit, you know? And that's actually, to be honest with you, I did a study one time on just how do we detect counterfeiters, you know, money counterfeiters. And so often people would say, well, you know, they, they teach you how to, you know, to, to detect counterfeit money. That's not true. They teach you what real money looks like. And when you take a person who handles money all the time and they really know what a real dollar looks like, they're not going to be fooled. Even if it's a close, they're not going to be fooled. So once again, how do we know what's right? The scriptures. You know, fill your heart with the scriptures, man. Get your head and your heart filled with it. Be a self-feeder. And you guys are. You know, and, and, and that's why you'll never be led astray. Plain and simple. Like I told you to start with, I've never seen people who just read their Bible that I've ever had any type of serious dis, dis, uh, disagreement with. Most of the time, just like these guys in Rome, they just come to the right conclusions if they read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. You know, we can have differences of opinions on small things. It's no big deal, you know. But doctrinally, I've never seen anybody have a problem. Here we go. We're going to finish it up. Verse 21. Timotheus, my, fellow, my work fellow, excuse me, and Lucius and Jason and Sopater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertullius, who wrote this epistle, or 
Tertius, excuse me, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluted you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluted you, and Quartus, a brother. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I like the fact that he does mention Timothy here, and Timothy rightly rates the first mention being one of Paul's closest and most trusted associates, who was also like a son to him. I've often said it because out of my own personal experience, I think every pastor needs a Timothy. And, you know, some guy, some young man that they have personally led to the Lord and then discipled and then watched them come into the ministry with them. That was Timothy for Paul. Uh, Paul's guy's name was Timothy. My guy's name was Todd. Todd Shiplett, you know, came to me as an atheist. He was a physicist. A uh, young man, fresh out of college, didn't know nothing, uh, tried not to hire him. And it was really funny because he was begging me for a job, and I didn't need him. And I kept saying, son, I don't need you. Well, I've got to get some experience. I said, look, I said, I, I'll work for nothing. I said, don't tell him. I'm Jewish. I tell you, don't tell me that because I'll take you up on it, you know. I, he's going, he worked for nothing. He's going, I, I'll work for nothing. I'll just a gate. I said, I, you know what? And the Lord told me right there, he said, hire this man. And I said, okay. I said, I'll tell you what, I, I will pay you, but I'm only going to pay you minimum wage. This guy had, this guy was a physicist. <laughs> I thought he would laugh me out. He could have went, <coughs> pardon me, he could have went to Battelle and probably started at $80,000 a year. But he took it. He jumped at it. I said, you better, you better think about this. I said, because I'm talking, I want you for two years. This was the deal I made this kid for. <laughs> I said, I want you for two years, and it's going to be at minimum wage. Well, that's fine. I said, no, 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 no. I'm going to put it in writing. I want, I'm telling you, because I said, I, and he was, and so make a long story short, uh, he was only like six months. He wanted to give his life to the Lord. And Todd became one of the greatest helpers I ever had in the ministry. And as he wound up being one of my assistant pastors after about 10 years, the guy was just on fire for the Lord. The guy was just a servant among servants. And a matter of fact, when he felt the calling, he actually wound up moving uh, up to Akron area, which he became involved in the Calvary Chapel up there, I actually got a phone call from the pastor one day. And his name was Gary Laferta at the time. I still know Gary. And Gary said, hey, Doug, he said, uh, man, he said, you know what? I just, I just felt the urge to call you. I just wanted to thank you. I just, this was just an interesting thing. I said, thank me for what? Because I didn't really deal with him much. He goes, I'm thanking you for Todd, man. He goes, I've never seen a guy so well discipled. I said, don't thank me, brother, because if I had my way about it, that boy would still be here. I said, I, I, I've lost sleep because of him gone. You know, I love that kid. I still love this kid. Um, when I went through one of my hardest periods of my life, and... Uh, the only man who came to find me was him. And, uh, everybody needs one. Everybody needs a Todd or a Timothy, you know. Never turned his back on me. Never. The kid knew me like, a, he just knew me like the back of his hand. You know, anytime I would, through the years that we ministered together, there was times that, you know, I would, I remember one time I got on him pretty harshly because I, my relationship with him was close. I 
felt I had the right to rebuke him if I wanted to, and I, I kind of got on him about something. I was in the right, but later on when I, I thought about it, I felt bad about it. So you know, it was a church, and it was before service, and so I called him. And as soon as I picked up, as soon as he picked up the 